Would you open, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. We're going to be in verses 1 to 25. Chapter 23, verses 1 to 25. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to start in verse 18. We'll work through the whole passage today, but we're going to start reading together in verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and released to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit today for the preaching of the word, for the receiving of the word. We pray that you would plant your word deep in our hearts and produce a harvest of righteousness for the glory of King Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. You may be seated. There are many passages in the scriptures, especially in the Pauline epistles, where when you open them up, there are multiple commands, multiple imperatives. You need to do this. You need to not do this. And this passage is not one of them. As we look at the narrative right here of the accusations against Jesus, the examinations by the governing authorities and the cries of the crowds. We don't see imperatives for us. In fact, we try to distance ourselves from them. And yet, I pray that today that we would see our own cries mixed in with the crowds. To walk through this passage, I want to organize it this way in this outline. Number one, Jesus was accused by the ruling council. Number two, Jesus was examined by the governing authorities. Number three, Jesus was exonerated by the governing authorities. And number four, Jesus was condemned by the prevailing voices. And as we walk through the passage at the end, I want to give some application really focused on the innocence of Jesus and the treason of humanity. So let's look first at verses 1 to 2. Jesus was accused by the ruling council. 
verses 1 to 2 of chapter 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, who is this whole company? Look back in verse 20, uh, verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. This was the Sanhedrin. It was the ruling council who was bringing the accusation against Jesus. And there were three accusations. One was, we found this man misleading our nation leading our nation astray. Number two, he forbids us to give tribute to Caesar. We know that is not true. In fact, they all knew that was not true. Back in chapter 20, verse 25, we see he says, he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. These were just false accusations. And the third one was that he himself is Christ, a king. And we know that Jesus is the king. In fact, he told Pilate uh, in John, in, in the book of John, that, that he was king and that, he, that his kingdom was from another world. It was not the kind of king that was a threat to Pilate. It was not the kind of king that was a threat to Rome. And so Pilate determined that there was no guilt in this man. There was no threat of insubordination or sedition or treason. So he was accused by the ruling council, but secondly, he was examined by the governing authorities. Look at verse three to seven, he was examined by Pilate, the governor. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. So Pilate the governor examined Jesus and he found in him nothing deserving of death, nothing that he was guilty of. And so he sent him to Herod, Herod the Tetrarch. Remember, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee. He was Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, the one who had wanted to kill Jesus earlier, we see back in chapter 13, verse 31, the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. Look at verses 8 to 12. When Herod saw Jesus, he was glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. 
And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Remember, Herod was the Jewish tetrarch of Galilee. And Pilate was the governor, a Roman governor, and they had been at odds. There was was some pulling of authority between the two. And yet, as they considered Jesus, they found themselves friends. It's amazing how sometimes those who would be at odds with one another all of a sudden find a common enemy or a common adversary and become friends because of a common adversary. But neither one of them could find in anything in Jesus that he was guilty of. In verse 9, we see the silence of Jesus, fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, which says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So he was examined by the governing authorities, but number three, he was exonerated by the governing authorities. Pilate and Herod found Jesus innocent of the charges. Look at verse four. Verse 4 says, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Verses 13 to 16, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore release, I will therefore punish and release him. And then also down in verse 22. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. He was exonerated by the governing authorities, the only ones who could put him to death. The Jews couldn't put him to death under their law. And yet, the governing authorities would not because they found in him no guilt. But as we move through the narrative, we see number four, he was condemned by the prevailing voices. Look at verses 18 to 25. But they all cried out together, away with this man, which means kill him, crucify him, and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. 
but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Albert Moeller says, Pilate weakly abdicates his responsibility for justice and gives into the crowd's demands. See, the governing authorities always have the responsibility for justice. And Pilate gave in to the demands of the crowds. The crowds and the chief priests were urgent in their accusations and bloodthirsty in their demands. You see it over and over and over again, but they were urgent. Verse 5, they vehemently accused him. Verse 10, they shouted, they kept shouting. Verse 21, crucify, crucify him. They were bloodthirsty in their demands. And Pilate gave in. Jesus was condemned by the prevailing voices. Now, before you start distancing yourself, from these bloodthirsty demands of the crowds and saying, I cannot believe those people. The Son of God was in their midst, the the Messiah, the Messiah of Israel. And they rejected him and hated him and wanted him dead. Well, let's make some application. The first thing I want us to see is, is how Luke emphasizes the innocence of Jesus in contrast to the depravity of the people, the prevailing voices. The innocence of Jesus, we saw that repeated again and again. I can't find anything that Jesus has done, nothing deserving of death. You see, he was the sinless one. The one who had obeyed the word of God, the law of God perfectly. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He was the innocent one who would die for the guilty ones. Who would stand in the place of sinners like you and me, the one who's perfectly righteous, who would die for the unrighteous. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer to the Hebrews says this. In verse 26, for it indeed was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, verses 14 to 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Even as Jesus was being falsely accused, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he continued entrusting himself to the God who judges justly. He was innocent, completely and perfectly innocent. And yet the contrast is against the treason of humanity, the depravity of the people which were prevailing. They prevailed over the justice that Pilate was responsible to give. See, God is sovereign and he holds man responsible. Everybody is playing right into God's sovereign plans to save a people for himself, and yet he will hold man responsible for his sins. Jonathan Edwards says the smallest sin is an act of cosmic treason against a holy God. You see, you you think of the crowds and you hear their shouts, crucify him, crucify him. And yet every time we say yes to sin, we say no to God. We say, no, I will not obey. No, I will not submit. No, you are not king over me. I will be king. The smallest sin, the little lie. What is it that you have to have so much that you will commit treason to get it, to lie, to deceive. What is it that you have to have? Maybe it's the applause of the people, the praise of the people. Maybe it's security in your bank account. When we sin against God, there's something that we have to have. Tim Keller talks about the sin beneath the sin. There's something underneath there. It's it's, it's not just the surface level sin. It goes deep to the heart. And the heart is deceptive. The smallest sin is an act of cosmic treason against a holy God. Jonathan Edwards was exactly right. 
The problem is we don't think about the smallest sin in comparison to the holiness of God. We compare our sins against everybody else. Well, I'm not as bad as the other person. What I've done is not as bad as my neighbor. And yet when we compare our own rebellion against the holiness of God, it's treason. You see, they were accusing Jesus of treason. And yet it's the crowds that are committing treason against Jesus, the King. It's us who commit treason against Jesus in our sin. C.H. Spurgeon says, surely no rebel can expect the king to pardon his treason while he remains in open revolt. Let me ask you, where are you today? Are you trusting the king to cover your rebellion with his innocent, precious, spotless blood that he laid down as a substitute for sinners like you and me? Are you trusting King Jesus to reconcile you to a holy God, a sinner reconciled to God through the person and work of Jesus? Jesus laid down his life for sinners. Are you trusting him to forgive you and to reconcile you? If you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus, listen again what Spurgeon said. Surely no rebel can expect the king to pardon his treason while he remains in open revolt. See, that's what the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that God pardons the treason of humans by placing on Jesus the wrath that was coming upon sin, by punishing the Son of God, the the perfect Lamb of God in the place of sinners. He forgives our treason. He reconciles us to Himself. And if God has not forgiven you through your trust in Jesus Christ, how could you expect God to pardon your treason while you're remaining in open revolt? While you're continuing in sin, it's not even logical. And maybe today you would say, I surrender. I surrender. I've committed treason against God. I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. And I need a Savior to reconcile me to God. And I see in Jesus Christ the only one who can forgive me of my sins. And I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus Christ to trust in him alone for my salvation. Instead of distancing yourself from the prevailing cries of the crowd, we should identify with the crowd. We should see our own depravity our own wickedness, our own propensity to want to be king and to stiff arm the true king of kings. We should recognize that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, 
but God had mercy on us. God came towards us in the gospel and forgave us, and by his grace we're saved. It's only by the grace of God. Jesus was accused, examined, exonerated, but then condemned by the crowds, convicted by a governor who gave in to the crowd's demands, who abdicated his responsibility for justice, all playing into God's sovereign plan to save sinners, to save a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Let's don't just see the narrative of the accusation and the condemnation of Jesus. Let's see in this text the good news of the gospel of Christ for all people. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We thank you for your great love for sinners. We thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus, the innocent one who died in the place of the guilty ones. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us as we give thanks and remember his once for all sacrifice as we come to the Lord's table, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Pray that we would give thanks. For nothing could reconcile us to God except for Jesus Christ. So Lord, strengthen us, encourage us, and I pray for those who have not yet trusted in Jesus that even now that you would use this time to draw them close to yourself, that your kindness would lead them to repentance and they would put their trust in Christ alone for salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.